0: values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. This will wake you up. If I wasn't fired up, I am now. Thanks for being here this morning. I appreciate you spending some time with us. So I have a bunch of stories uh, when we do show prep in the morning, Julie and I get together and we kind of figure out the direction we're going to go with things. And I saw a bunch of stories and I put them together because I want to talk about some specifics. But it's a bigger topic. Fast food stabbing suspect indicted after two evil attacks at Metro Phoenix in Metro Phoenix. That is a headline. That's not my headline. But this guy that stabbed two women in Arizona after being accused of a fatal stabbing in New York City, crimes in Florida, he's now been indicted here. Um, New York wanted him extradited because the crimes were committed there. Murders were committed there. And our county attorney said she's not sure that they're not going to go lenient on him. And it's caused a political controversy. And I don't want to get into the controversy part of it. I want to talk about the way things need to be done in order for justice to work. And I'm not going to go down the the road I've been down so many times, but I've been, and I'm not a major victim of a crime, but I've been the victim of a crime. And there was a fair chance that that crime was not going to be punished. And I was furious that I did things the right way. I didn't take the law into my own hands. And at the time I had the ability and I didn't. And I let the I let the system handle it, and the system almost let me down, and I would have been furious. So I want to talk about a couple of these things, and and the byproduct of a flawed system. Uh, Scottsdale uh, PD. Uh, after 131 confirmed dinnertime burglaries in high-profile Metro Phoenix neighborhoods, many residents are worried they could be next. About 1,000 people packed Scottsdale's Highland Church on Tuesday and submitted questions to Scottsdale police as they gave an update on what's called crime tourism. Um, that's That's another headline. School districts. Two of Arizona's largest school districts have decided to give police access to their surveillance system. The Peoria Unified and Mesa Unified School Districts recently approved agreements to grant local police departments access to live school camera feeds during emergencies. The districts say the partnership will help police better respond to emergencies by allowing them to immediately locate threats, medical emergencies, large fights or active shooters. Um, so let's look on the other side of this. Here's the story about Pittsburgh. The Pittsburgh Police Department is so understaffed that they will only respond to in-progress emergency calls. Uh, the Phoenix Police Department has a uh, uh, their radios and they have priority. I think it's one, two and three is what their priorities are. Um, But when there is a crime in progress and it doesn't necessarily have to be a violent, crazy crime, but if it's something that's happening in real time, there's a tone that goes out over the radio and the dispatcher says emergency traffic. And then we'll call out what the what the call is. Those are priority one calls. According to this story in Pittsburgh, that's the only thing they're going to respond to because they don't have enough people to respond to others. I say this because we here in this valley, every city within the sound of my voice has got to make sure that when they say public safety first, they make sure they're doing it. And I will tell you, um, it is it is a fight to push back against the defund the police movement and all of these other things. But there's a lot we're going to talk about this morning. We're going to talk about homelessness and the fight and how much Arizona spends on homelessness each year. But if we don't want to have to fight the uphill battle, we see other places. You've got to fight it early. Uh, the municipalities here in town, I've, I've chronicled and I'm going to have them on again soon and get an update. The Phoenix Fire Department, the Phoenix Fire Department is dramatically understaffed. And I want you to know something nationally. And I talk with a lot of people around the country, and these are not my words, although I agree with this. Nationally, the Phoenix Police Department and the Phoenix Fire Department are known as elite agencies when it comes to um, putting out fires of electric vehicles. Phoenix Fire has been on the leading edge of what other agencies follow around the country. They are seen as an elite agency, and they should be. We've got great police departments and fire departments across this valley. I just did a story not too long ago for TV, and I was in Mesa and I was uh, with with a firefighter that has a dog that smells accelerants. And when you go to an arson scene and I watched this dog work and how many cases across the state of arson, just this handler and this canine have solved around the state of Arizona for people when arson happens, it, just amazing work that they do in those professions. But if we allow them to slip, if we allow them to slip in numbers like we have with Phoenix, the Phoenix has grown so much. The fire department's response times have lagged, and the reason that they've lagged is because we don't have enough fire stations, we don't have enough equipment, and we certainly don't have enough personnel to man ambulances and fire trucks. We just don't. And we as people, and I always ask the question, what kind of a city do you want? I live in Phoenix, that's why I talk so much about Phoenix, but if you live in Glendale, what kind of a city do you want? Scottsdale, Chandler, what kind of a city do you want? If you want a city where public safety truly comes first, that when you dial 911 on the worst day of your life, whether it's a crime that's being committed or it's a medical emergency or a fire, you want someone and you want people to show up that can take care of that situation, that they've got the labor force, the manpower and the equipment to do the job, period. That's what you expect. If that's the kind of city that you expect, if you expect your tax dollars to prioritize that, you have to elect people to offer office, which means you have to be an informed voter, you have to be someone that knows when I vote for someone in my district that says they are public safety first, they're going to show it when they get ready to fight for a budget. I started with the stabbing suspect because here's a situation where this guy has been committing crimes around the country. And if I were New York, I'd want that guy back in New York too, because I'd want him to pay for the murder in New York, Florida, wherever else it's been. But he's here and he got caught here. And as far as I'm concerned, as someone in Arizona, I want to see this guy pay for his crimes here. You can't have a justice system that works unless you have, and I'm going to go back now specifically in public safety to policing. You have to have a police department that is fully equipped and staffed. You have to have police officers that are aggressively chasing criminals. And I don't mean aggressively physically. I mean, they are nose to the grindstone kind of people that are out there realizing that they are standing in the gap and they're making legitimate arrests of people that are doing the wrong thing. They are doing solid investigations so that the evidence is there for prosecution. Then you have to have prosecutors that are willing to go to court. On these cases to show that if you commit a crime in our community, we are not going to be understaffed. That's another staffing issue, whether it's in a city prosecutor's office in your town or if it's in the Maricopa County um, attorney's office, or if it's the judges that we need, we have to have a justice system where once those cases are presented, there is the labor force of prosecutors that are also going to aggressively prosecute cases. And then we have to have judges that are willing to hand out sufficient sentences to send messages, especially to a violent repeat offenders. That's the only way. Now, there are going to be people like this guy. He appears to be a maniac. He appears to be one of those mentally ill people that has got either no conscience. When I say mentally ill, I don't mean can't stand trial. I mean someone that's so twisted in their thinking that they're, they're stabbing people, that they're committing murders. So you may not ever change this guy But we should be able to separate him. I say that there are three jobs of the prison system. One of them is punishment for a crime. You commit a crime, you go to prison, you pay a price. The other is separating dangerous people from average society, that they need to be separated from us so we are safer. And thirdly is rehabilitation, and that largely is up to the inmate. But we have got to do a better job. If we don't do a better job of this, we are going to see crime climb here like it has in other places. Now, nationally, we're seeing violent crime go down. That's a great number. Let's keep that number going down. But we don't want to see public safety suffer in numbers. And we have to be on the front lines of making that happen. In a moment, we're going to shift to Washington, D.C. Who's going to replace Mitch McConnell as the GOP leader? I've got a list of candidates. Let's talk about who it might be in the end. Mitch McConnell has um, announced or announced yesterday we carried it here or we talked about it here. I let you hear some of his words yesterday that he is going to step down from his leadership position of the Republican caucus in the United States Senate, which opens the door for new leadership. Says it's time for a next generation. One of the names I threw out there was Ted Cruz, not even one mentioned in, in, in the list of people that are on it, which I was a little surprised by. But if you look at some of the people that are prospective um, changes uh, or, or new leaders, um, it is an interesting group of people. Um, let me see some of the names that I'm looking at here. Uh, Steve Danes of Montana, Tom Cotton of Arkansas, Rick Scott is another name that's on one of these lists. When I go over to another news story, they say John Cornyn from Texas, John Thune, North Dakota, Barrasso from Wyoming, Rick Scott from Florida. And then it lists Cotton and Danes as well. And then another story also talks about the possibility of someone that's been a very big critic of of um, of Senator McConnell is is also Josh Hawley. Who is is a senator as well? The reason why I'm throwing out names to talk about this is these are important positions. Even if, if you're a Democrat, it's an important uh, it's an important position. The opposition leader is an important position in the United States Senate. How negotiation works, though, it's different in the House of Representatives. It's maintaining your caucus. I mean, that's the most important thing is, is especially with the narrow margin of of majority for the Republicans, they've got to maintain and try to keep solid their caucus. Leadership is focusing on that. But in the United States Senate with the power of the filibuster, um, it is also important that there's a negotiation that goes on between leadership of both parties. And that's really the way all of this should work. You, They say that the Senate is the saucer that cools the drink. And that it it prevents by having that, and I do believe this is true, by having the power of the filibuster, you avoid these huge pendulum swings in pieces of legislation. That when the Democrats have control, let's say the Democrats have control of the House and the Senate, then you have a swing left if they both were just simple majorities in their bodies, both chambers. And then when the Republicans took control, it would swing severely in the other direction. So I'm in favor of continuing the filibuster. I think it's the right thing to do, as frustrating as it can be sometimes. But having leadership that can negotiate that way, maintain their caucus, but negotiate with the opposition is an important position to have. But I also pulled this story because one of the things that McConnell talked about yesterday was that he's 82 years old and that he understands it's time for a new generation. But I want you to hear some names, and I want you to hear some numbers. Chuck Grassley is a Republican from Iowa. He's 90. Bernie Sanders is 82. McConnell is 82. Jim Risch of Idaho is 80. Carden. Ben Carden from Maryland, is 80. Angus King is 79. Dick Durbin is 79. Richard Blumenthal, 78. And then Marky Carper and... Shaheen are both seven. Are all three seventy-seven? Mitt Romney is seventy-six. So is Peter Welch, Joe Manchin, and Mazie Hirono from Hawaii. Are all seventy-six years old? Those are fifteen senators. that are above the age of seventy-five. Now, I will tell you that I know a lot of people that are older and are still very, very, very good at their jobs if they want them. So I'm not saying that all of these people should go, but I gave this speech yesterday. I talked at length about this yesterday. We have leadership that's getting older, but who is in line to replace them? What ends up happening, and it's interesting that this goes this way, is its name ID because the voting population votes that way quite a bit. But you will see House members jump in, and I'm not calling it a good thing or a bad thing. You've got Ruben Gallego that throws his hat in the ring for a Senate run. He's in the House for a while, maybe is going to make the jump to the Senate. All well and good to do those things. Uh, Senator Sinema was in the House before she was elected to the Senate. But who is and where are we mentoring leadership so that people are prepared. I, I've t- I talked so much about this yesterday. Uh, if you go back, Ronald Reagan gave a speech and I believe it was 1964, uh, before my time, he gave a speech called A Time for Choosing. And it was to raise money for Barry Goldwater's campaign and Ronald Reagan was very, very clear that there would have never been a Ronald Reagan had it not been for a Barry Goldwater. But I want you to think about this time frame. Here was the kind of the politically in Republican circles coming out party and kind of on a national scale, who is this guy, Ronald Reagan? It was 1964. He didn't get elected president until 1980. Now he had been governor and he'd done other things, but there was a process of him in growth. And some would call that good and some would call that bad because he became a politician or we don't want politicians. But what you ended up seeing with him is he became the Ronald Reagan that is known internationally in 1984, 20 years later, when he won 49 states for reelection. And he was not popular when he was elected. As a matter of fact, the election cycle before that, he tried to primary Gerald Ford and the Republican Party was not happy with Ronald Reagan. They did not like him primarying a sitting president. And of course, Gerald Ford lost to Jimmy Carter. But I will tell you that the idea of fostering growth and mentoring people is as necessary in that business as in any business. Um, And especially if you're going to have somebody in leadership that long, you've got all 15 people, 15 people that are over the age of 75. There is a generation coming where there's going to be a big sweeping change by virtue of attrition, where they're going to be retiring from their positions and moving on in life. And who will replace them and what will that body look like? Who will make up the difference? It's just a fascinating look for me anyway. In a moment, uh, we are going to talk about the border. Both President Trump and President Biden heading to the border in separate places in Texas. We'll talk about that visit next. Strong values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. All right, NASCAR returns to Phoenix Raceway March 9th through the 11th for the Shriners Children's 500. Get ready for a thrilling experience as NASCAR heads west as drivers like Kyle Larson, Chase Elliott, take to the Desert Jewel for your chance to experience this. Head head over to the contest page over at KTAR.com for your chance to win tickets. All right. Thanks for being here. Um, the presidents, former President Trump, current President Biden are headed to the border today. Um, this still fascinates me, this whole battle that's coming up, and I, I maybe I'm too fascinated by it. But uh, and I'm again making assumptions that they are going to be the nominees for their party. They both haven't you know, cleared their primaries yet, but the handwriting seems to be on the wall for both of them. We're going to talk more specifically about elections in the next hour, um, specifically the issues that both candidates are facing. But as far as the border goes, um, the American people are fed up. We know about the millions, billions of dollars that are being spent. The city of Denver is closing aid facilities. We know that Casa Elitas here in Arizona, uh, it's, a, it's a government. It's an NGO or a non-governmental organization. The government funding to house um people in this country illegally. And I'll tell you, when they call them asylum seekers, I am someone, and I don't know that this conversation happens. I know there's not time in the soundbite world we live in. You know, there's a difference, like, you know, even here on Arizona's Morning News, they do such a great job, but they don't have the time that I have to expand on a topic. And now mine's opinion, theirs is journalism, but theirs is, it's a different format. So I don't know that there's the time to explain some of these things. But when you look at what's happening, these asylum seekers, we know the statistics are very clear. The vast majority of people that are crossing our southern border and claiming asylum have illegitimate claims and they know it, but they're told how what to say and how to say it. When they get here, they are saying the magic words. They're put in a line that is years long, and this is if you look at what we did with the dreamers. Let me just—I'm—I'm I'm scattered a little bit. I'll get back to the visit in a moment. But the dreamers were created because, you know, decades ago, families crossed our southern border. Our government would turn a blind eye to it. Whether you agree with it or not, that's what happened. People were allowed to establish lives without properly coming across our border. Um, And so they came across the border. They established. They got jobs. They went to work. They bought homes. They raised their children in American schools. Their children don't know any other country but this one. They are in all a ways except for their birth certificate or social security number or or citizenship papers, these adults now that were brought here as children are Americans. We still haven't resolved that issue, but here we are creating what will be the next generation and here's why. With a waiting list of two, three, four, five years for people to get an asylum hearing, what's going to happen with those people? They're gonna put down roots, they're gonna develop relationships, they're going to have children, there's no way they're going to be sent out of this country. Many of them may not show up for an immigration hearing, but are they going to be deported? What do you think is going to happen five years from now? And in five years, when these hearings come up and people don't show and then they get arrested, or if they do show up and the government says, you do not have a legitimate claim to asylum in America. And they say, well, it's, I'm married and we've got a business and we've got children and. It's a mess. It's it's creating a mess. And we all understand it. And that's the mess to the immigration system. The other part of it is we've got things happening all over the world where asylum is necessary. So you've got the smaller number of people that are entitled to asylum by American laws and by American kindness. And they're waiting in that line five years later to have their, their, their status finally justified by our government because they're in a line that they shouldn't have to be in. So we all understand that's part of the issue. The border security problem here with the potential of terrorism, with the other things that are happening, yes, crime that is being committed. But so now you're going to have two different people at the border today. You're going to have our current president who is going to had to be on the defensive because of what's happening at the border. So he is going to go to Brownsville, Texas. And I just I believe this with all of my heart. He is going to blame Donald Trump. It's going to blame Donald Trump. He's already done it and blame MAGA Republicans because Donald Trump, in their minds, Donald Trump is pulling the strings. And so Donald Trump convinced Republicans in the Senate not to be on board with a bill that could have moved forward, that could have if they if they didn't like some things. And this is all true, by the way, that if it had gotten to the floor for debate in the United States Senate, that there was an opportunity for amendments to be brought forward and they didn't do that. Well, it was Democrats that did it as well, but he's going to focus on the Republicans killing this at the behest of Donald Trump because Donald Trump wants chaos at the border so that he can try to win in November. It's going to be a hard sell because this has been going on for three years plus. And for three years, we heard from this president and from everybody that works in this administration that there is no crisis at the border. As a matter of fact, we, and I should have, but it, it would be a waste of time because you've heard it. But I just think it would be interesting the number of times the vice president of the United States, the Homeland Security Secretary, the White House press secretary, and the president himself have said the border is secure. The border is secure. The border is secure. And then all of a sudden in January of this year, we start to hear, no, it's not. Now we're hearing from them that it's a crisis, Crisis at the border, crisis at the border, crisis at the border. And the only way to solve it is with the very first draft of a piece of legislation. Why would and I mean this sincerely? If it was the other side of the aisle, they wouldn't. Why would anybody at this point trust that this president has a plan that would fix the problem at the border and that he seriously wants to shut the border down to the extent that we control who comes and goes, not shut it down and not allow anybody in, but we only allow in legitimate asylum seekers, that there is something that happens, whether it's remain in Mexico or whatever you wanna call it. Why would anybody believe that this president would turn on a dime and all of a sudden be. Now, I'm not saying he can't do it, and I'm not saying he couldn't convince the American people, but he believes and the administration believes that he is just going to shout one day, yes, there's a crisis and here's how we're going to fix it. Vote for this. This is the only way to fix it. And after three years of what we've seen, that we should just blindly believe that that's what he's saying. But that's what he's got to try to sell at the border today. The border has become such a crisis. That even the people in his own party and then prominent members, governors and mayors of big cities and big states, blue, deep blue states, are furious at the way this is being handled. Denver is not a conservative city. No, not by a long shot. Chicago and the state of Illinois surely isn't. Neither is Massachusetts. Neither is Washington, D.C. Neither is New York City or the state of New York. And they all are clamoring for how how bad things are. So this president has got to sell to the American people that he wants to close down the border while not alienating his base who thinks that's a horrible idea and sell to the American people that the only reason why he hasn't closed the border is because Donald Trump interfered in a piece of legislation. That's got to be his plan. And I don't know how he's going to be able to or if he is going to be able to pull that off. It's going to be fascinating to see when we start getting sound bites from those visits. In a moment, Arizona spends how much per year on homelessness? We're going to talk about that statistic coming up here in just a moment. Values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 923 FM, and the KTAR News app. Okay, here it is from ABC 15. The report says Arizona spends about one billion dollars annually on homelessness. Arizona's homeless population has reportedly increased nearly 30% over the last three years. Uh, Arizona spends a billion annually on homelessness. The recent release data from Common Sense Institute, Arizona can be viewed in depth on their on the story on their website. Uh, those costs include things like shelter treatments, food and other services coming to about $44,000 per individual is what we are spending. So the question would be, are we getting a billion dollars worth of relief. Uh, it is an issue. I do not believe we can solve the problem of homelessness if it is not considered a community problem. Um it is something that I I believe we as a community should struggle with. I admire the organizations who are dedicating to helping um CAS Central Arizona Shelter Services. If you want to see a wonderful organization that is comprehensively trying to address the issue of homelessness, it is an incredible place down where the zone used to be. Outside the zone got all the attention, but what happened behind the the doors of CAS and all of the services and the organizations that are there is incredible stuff. But there is more to it. it it's got to be a bigger plan. And I know smarter people than I have come up with this or have, have talked about this. Um, but when you look at this, it is addressing the needs of the people that are currently homeless. There's no doubt about that. And then and, and separating the needs. There are some people that don't want help, they are service resistant. They are either happy where they are or they are not willing to do what's necessary to get out of where they are, one or the other. The service resistant people. And the reason why we have to address this is, let me explain why this is a community problem in a moment. But then you separate the service resistant from the people that are truly looking for a way back to um, a a, a sense of of contribution, where they are working and where they are self-sufficient. And then after you look at that population and figure out how we're going to address that, you have to look at the people and do what we can to keep people in their homes that are at the very high risk of losing their homes for a multitude of reasons. What can we do to aid those people? Because it's much more expensive to get them into a home than it is to keep them in a home and to help them not just stay in the home they're in by giving them some money every month, but how do you get them self-sufficient? What is it that they need, whether it's job training or something else that's going to get them back on track. Sometimes it's as simple as a fully functioning automobile so they can drive to work. Uh, One of the great things, one of the, and I'm trying to not take up too much time on specific things. But at St. Vincent de Paul, they have a bicycle ministry. They, they build bicycles, they take old bicycles, they take parts and they build bicycles and they give them to people. And it's a way to get them to work and to job interviews. As simple as that sounds, that is something that helps get people on the path to self-sufficiency. And then the next level beyond that is what are we doing to prepare people that are going into the job market to realize what it's going to take to be self-sufficient and stable that we're all in danger. You know, I lived a very, very big part of my life where we were in our family, we were one tragedy away from homelessness. I'm talking about a flat tire, uh, an engine going out in a car, one major expense from being outdoors. And um, so, you know, I look at, I take this very seriously. So that's one part of addressing this issue. You know, the organizations that do such great work support them. That's a simple thing. But we have to look at it as a community problem. There's a story here. um, Homeowners clash with the city that refuses to remove street squatters, causing a disgusting hazard. You can figure out what the disgusting hazard is. In St. Louis, Missouri, they have these policies where people can squat in the streets and literally. And uh, they are doing the same thing we know they were doing in the San Francisco area. We this is a community issue. The parks that we have in our neighborhoods, the parks that are there for our children to play in. When you live in a densely urban and continuing to grow urban area, having those green spaces for kids to have their soccer leagues and baseball games and just play with their friends and go on the swing sets, we should not have those areas littered with drug paraphernalia and people sleeping in the park and vagrancy. I'm not saying anything. I'm not trying to be hateful to people that are in that situation, but there is a standard of living that has to be met. And you are down on your luck. You are in a bad situation. But that doesn't mean that you can be that to other people. You can't leave drug paraphernalia. You can't sleep on the grass. You can't interrupt kids. You can't be drunk in public sex acts. You can't do it. And we have to live in a society that won't tolerate it. Meaning we understand and we're going to do everything we can to get you services, but that does not mean you're going to get away with ruining the quality of life in a neighborhood because we're seeing more of that happen. When the zone broke up, more and more people that were homeless that were now service resistant found themselves going into parks and going into other areas and neighborhoods, and then it was ruining the quality of life or certainly damaging the quality of life in those neighborhoods. That's another way it needs to be addressed by the community. It's another reason why the community should be involved in how can we solve this problem or at least diminish the problem. Phoenix is in a much better place than a lot of major urban areas. And if we don't stay on top of this, it's going to get much worse. And it's something that we all have to look at. It is it is a difficult thing to look at. but We have to look at it. And as a community, we have to address it and lean on these organizations that know how to do it. There are a lot of great ones that do coming up just after 10 o'clock. We're going to talk about The elections, the president's approval rating and the legal troubles for the former president. What does it all mean as far as the election in a moment?